How does a man become a kingdom man? We're going to look at that today. We're in a study on the book of Exodus. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, I'm Randy. We're so glad to get to worship with you today. And um, we typically just study through a book of the Bible, and we are in Exodus. And so um, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 3. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 14. You'll find that on page 46 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, I would love it if you would just take that copy in the pouch in front of you and put your name in it and call it your own, take it home as a gift from the church. We're studying the life of Moses through the book of Exodus. And some have called this the conversion of Moses. The call of Moses, how a man becomes a a man of God, a servant of the Lord, a kingdom man. So follow along with me as I read chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord.
Deuteronomy 34, 7 says that Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. 120 years. Someone observed that the first 40 years of Moses' life were spent in Egypt learning something. Then the next 40 years were spent in the desert learning to be nothing. And the final 40 years of Moses' life were spent in the wilderness proving that God was everything. Something, nothing, everything. Now that's a life. This servant of the Lord, this kingdom man. Now, the verses that we read in Exodus chapter 3 deal with Moses in the third trimester of his life. The God is everything portion. Think about it. Exodus 1 and 2 are his first 80 years. My, how time flies. Moses' final 40 years occur from Exodus chapter 3 through the end of Exodus on into to, uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy 34. And why? Well, as Justin Craig so aptly said last week in his message, God does not, la God does, God does not let our past define our potential. He takes the mistakes that take us into the wilderness and transforms them into his purposes. I find that so full of hope. Think about it. Could it be that the most significant part of your life has yet to be written? And you have no idea what's coming. No idea. Moses had no idea what was coming. He awoke that morning like any other morning. It was going to be a routine, mundane day. He was going to be watching over the herds and protecting them and feeding them and doing all of this in the solitary life of a shepherd. It's what his life had become. Forty years earlier, he had walked the halls of Egyptian power. Forty years earlier, he had eaten among the privileged. Forty years earlier, he had learned with the elite. He'd been educated to assume some responsibility in Pharaoh's administration. But that was before the murder and the cover-up and being wanted and becoming a fugitive. And in Midia, he had found a new life. He found a new family. A career. He was a simple shepherd. He would die a simple shepherd. So he thought. And on that routine mundane day, he took his familiar flock. Beyond the familiar location to a place called Mount Oreb. Oreb. It's a place that literally means wasteland. And rounding the corner, his life changed. Verses 2 and 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why? The bush is not burned. A roaring flame engulfs a desert bush, yet the bush does not burn. Rather, it, it doesn't burn up. And then the angel of the Lord spoke, Moses, Moses, fire. It attracted Moses and yet warned him too. Isn't that the way fire is? You come close, but not too close. No closer. Remove your shoes. You are on holy ground. And Moses meets the God of his people, the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. And in verses 7 through 9, the Lord speaks. He says, he speaks a series of I have sentences. I have seen. I have heard. I know the sufferings of my people, and I've come down to deliver them, and I will take them up. Verses 7 through 9 echo Exodus 2, 24, where it says, God heard, and God remembered, and God saw, and God knew after four centuries of brutal slavery, four centuries of back-breaking brick-making, four centuries of dehumanizing bondage, God is acting. What feelings swirled around Moses' spirit? Fascination? Fear? Relief? Hope? God is finally doing something. And, and Moses then heard these, these unexpected words, I will send you to bring up my people. Now, I don't know about you. I just picture Moses. He's listening. He's nodding. He's tracking God. Yes, yes, finally. Excuse, excuse me. What? What did you just say? Verse 10, come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses, your going is my coming down. You are my answer. Now go get them and bring them to me right here in this very place. <laughs> and, and the remainder of these verses... Um, Moses unsuccessfully argues with God, trying to talk him out of his plan. And his unsuccessful debate centers around two key questions. And they're good for us. Who am I? Who are you? First, who am I? Verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? It's a, it's a good question. It's an appropriate question. Posed by one who has been forged in the anonymity of the wilderness. Posed by one who has been humbled by decades in the desert. And posed by one who was in the midst of his mundane was just another day for Moses. I mean, this, this was no vision. This, Moses was not on a spiritual retreat. He was at work. He was at work doing his routine, doing the thing he had always done. And then out of nowhere, God disrupted his life. 
And did you notice Moses doesn't reply with, oh, Lord, thank you. I, I feel so honored. I, actually, I've been praying for this opportunity. I, I've been thinking about what a public ministry might look like uh, because, you see, I've always wanted to do big things for God. That's not verse 11, is it? Verse 11 is a collision. A collision at the intersection uh, with human inadequacy ramming into an intimidating adversary and then piled on with an insurmountable assignment. Who am I? It is a question that is at once a confession. I am not. I'm nothing. I'm powerless. I'm feeble. I can't. I, I can't. The poet wrote, enough. A word so simple, so captivating, so full of promise, yet so full of deceit. Beckoning me toward a paradise that ever eludes me. A beautiful garden whose fruits are always fresh, but always out of reach. Because I am not enough, not smart enough, not strong enough, not caring enough, not good enough, not successful enough, not beautiful enough, not enough to meet the simple challenges of today, not enough for the weighty troubles of tomorrow, not enough to feel at peace right now, not enough, not nearly enough to offer anything of worth to an infinitely worthy God. I am not. I'm not. And someone might say, well, thanks for the encouragement, Pastor. Thanks for making me feel small. Thanks for making me feel small. Church family, you know I love you. I am not trying to, I'm not trying to make anyone feel small. I'm trying to tell us that we are small. And there's a big difference. And I'm trying to tell us what God says after what Moses says. God says, don't worry about your smallness. You, you don't ever have to worry about your weakness. What you need to worry about is your delusion of strength. Verse 12, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses, you are a bundle of smallness ablaze with the grace of God. And that's just not true for Moses. The invitation is for us, too. Well, speaking of God, that takes us to question number two. Who am I? Well, who are you? Moses says to God in verse 13, Okay, I go to the people of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. And then, you know, they're going to ask, Well, what's his name? What do I say? Verse 14, this mysterious Numinous answer, I am who I am. 
What is that? Well, the significance of that answer has to be seen in the context of this. In the context of the ancient world where it was thought that to know and pronounce a name thought to be divine would give the speaker power and control over that name. To be able to manipulate that name. I name you, therefore I control you. And that's not about to happen here. I am who I am. It's... Uh, it's practically untranslatable. The Hebrew uh, language is what the Old Testament comes to us in. And I am who I am is really just the broadest verb in Hebrew, to be. Being itself has sent me to you. Reality has sent me to you. I am who I am. I am reality. In other words, nobody gave me a set of genes, God says. Nobody brought me into existence or shaped my personality. I had no beginning. There's no reality outside myself that did not come from me. And so there's no force or no influence upon me except that which comes from me and is controlled by me. I am absolute. There is no reality beyond me. And, and you see, this explains the burning bush. I mean, a normal bush in an arid desert like that would have naturally exploded had it caught fire. But that fire was not contingent on the bush. The fire had the power of its own being. Moses was encountering the self-existent God, the God who's not contingent on anything, the God who's truly independent, the God who does not need us, nor is he dependent on us. If, if I'm feeling gloomy, my glum doesn't bring God down. Uh, his emotional well-being does not depend on me. He's unobligated. And some might ask, well, I mean, if God made everything, who made God? Oh, that's kind of a silly question. Because by definition, God is uncreated, self-existent. He's always existed. He is absolute reality. I am who I am. Now then, in our university culture, some affirm a relativism and pluralism, that is to say, the preference to view religion and our concept of God as we like. And so it's common to hear this phrase, well, in my view, I prefer to think of God this way. And, well, that's interesting. But we never say that about the weather. I mean, nobody gets up in the morning and grabs their phone and pushes the weather as I prefer it app. Right? You know, why? Because we want to know what the weather is. Is. It was 25 degrees this morning. Okay? That's what it is. Yeah. Now, if there is a God, if God exists, wouldn't you agree that he is at least as real as the weather? I am who I am. It means that objectivity is crucial. 
Christianity is grounded in objective truth that's more than our own subjective feelings or desires. And you know, we may desire God to be a certain way, and we may feel that He simply can't be the way some people say He is, but what we feel or what we want doesn't make God what He is. And when God says, I am who I am, He is summoning us and inviting us to humble objectivity he 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 puts it this puts an end to the notion that everybody's view of god is as good as everybody else's god is who he is and nobody's opinion of him makes any difference and, and so our calling as his creatures is to know him for who he is not for who we'd like him to be that's what's going on here who are you i am who i am and this truth would be echoed in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul said that before the relativistic, pluralistic place in Athens, Paul says in Acts 17, 25, nor is he served, God, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, I don't know if this is going to offend you or not, but uh, here's, a, here's a quote that could. Let's see. <laughs> the most offensive part is this next sentence. The Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It assumes that everyone more or less does. What it is interested in is our response. Will we let God be as He is, majestic and holy, vast and wondrous, or will we try to whittle him down to the idols of our puny minds, confining him within our comfort zones and refusing to consider him outside our conveniences? That the God of Exodus 3 is the incomparable, holy other I am, not some dime store reproduction made in man's image. And so this exodus is going to be a deliverance from something to something. From Pharaoh to the Lord. So salvation is never freedom in that, okay, now you're on your own, run along. Salvation is the rescue from one master to a better master. To a better master. And uh, in verses 17 to 22 of chapter 3, God just tells Moses what to expect. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the plan. Here's the plan. Israel will listen. Pharaoh will be hardened. Egypt will be plagued. The Egyptians will be plundered. And deliverance will occur. Ready? Break. That's the plan. That is. There it is. And then Moses... You know, he argues, well, well, what if they don't believe me? All right, 
Take some miracles with you. Here, have some. What's in your hand? It's a staff. Throw it down. Throws it down. Because the snake, what is that? God says, pick it up. 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 He picks it up. It turns back to a staff again. <gasps> Moses, stick your hand into your cloak. What? Stick it into your cloak. What? Stick it into your cloak. Okay. Sticks it in. Pull it out. What? Pull it out. Pull it out. Pull it out. Ah, it's leprosy. <laughs> Put it back in your cloak. What? Put it back in your cloak. Put it back in your cloak. Okay, now pull it out. How did you do that? I am. I am. And if those two don't work, we'll flavor the river. The water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And that's, that's a preview of the plagues that are to occur. But listen to me. There's always a theological reason behind a miracle. God's just not into pyrotechnics, okay? So these plagues that will be inflicted upon Egypt, each one of those plagues represented an Egyptian idol. So reality, I am who I am, is waging war against the puny idols concocted in the small minds of creatures who choose to worship creation instead of the creator. And that's what's going on. And still Moses pushes back. Oh God, I, I, I just, uh, oh, oh my Lord, verse 10. Oh my Lord, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not eloquent. I've got a clumsy tongue. And the irony, of course, is that the Lord seems to be articulating his resistance rather clearly. But his problem is that he's thinking too much of himself. I, 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 I. His problem wasn't that he had inadequacies. Who doesn't have inadequacies? His problem was that his attention was focused on them instead of the I am. From God's point of view, it's not about Moses' abilities or inabilities or giftedness or the lack thereof. It is about who accompanies Moses. I am with you. That's enough. And Moses, poor guy, he is running out of excuses. None, none of these excuses are logically connected. There's no unifying theme except that Moses just didn't want to go. And, of course, then he just finally says as such in verse 13. Oh, my Lord, just please send someone else. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Oh, 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 the patience of God. <laughs> Why, why is Moses talking like this? I'll tell you why. He still thinks this is an interview. He still thinks he has a choice. <laughs> the Lord informs him otherwise. Moses, Moses, you're going. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, take Aaron, your brother, and he can go with you, but he is not going for you. And Moses, this meeting is over. And in verse 17, as Moses slogs off, the Lord gives him a parting shot. Hey, don't forget your staff. You're going to need it. 
And our scripture passage concludes. <laughs> this reluctant deliverer. Wrestling with these questions. Who am I? Who are you? Something, nothing, everything. So last month I turned 57. Yeah. <laughs> As I was reading these verses, the thought occurred to me that I am in the last trimester of my life. Which on the one hand is exciting. If I can keep my eyes open, my focus on the Lord, the, the God is everything part. It's the possibilities are beyond my thinking. God can still write the best part of my life and yours. But on the other hand, I cannot help but be haunted by this question. Why have I not learned this lesson sooner? Who am I? I am not. I am not. Who are you? I am. I am not, but I know I am. And the Apostle Paul echoes this very truth later on in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. When he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have the treasure of I am in the jars of clay. I'm not. And why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, for some of us, even this morning, I believe, God is disrupting your routine. You just thought you were going to come to church this morning. But I have a sneaking suspicion that for some here, it's a burning bush Sunday. God is revealing himself through his word, and he's calling you, and he's taking initiative. We love because he first loved us. Moses wasn't seeking God. Romans 3, 11 says, no one seeks God. No one. God takes initiative in the midst of our mundane. He, Moses was just doing his mundane, and he bumps into a burning bush. God initiated, and Moses responded. That's how it works. Listen, you, you cannot know God unless he calls you. 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul says, Brothers, consider your calling. How, how do I know if I'm called? You're here, aren't you? And a calling can look a dozen different ways, from a conversation at a coffee shop to a, an unexpected event to a tragedy to a funeral to a birth to a missions trip. God can even use an, a, a sermon. But when God reveals himself, it's not for the sake of information or education. It's for life transformation. Because he's not just interested in doing a work through you. He wants to do a work in you. To you. Because he's interested in you. He loves you. Part of the beauty of Moses' life is just to see what it looks like 
when a man of God is in love with his God and, and, and nothing else matters. Could this be a burning bush moment for you? Where, where this clumsy-tongued preacher articulates the reality who put on flesh Jesus Christ. Where from these verses, we look ahead to other verses, and we hear of one who would follow who is greater than Moses. This infinite, absolute, self-determining God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. One greater than Moses who said, I am. You hungry? Jesus said, I am the bread. Thirsty? I am the living water. In darkness, I am the light. Lost, I am the way. Confused, I am the truth. Fear of death, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen, it is not about you, and it is not about your past, and it's not your scars that matter, it's his scars that matter. For in his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, and the sending of his Holy Spirit, we have been commissioned by Jesus, the I am, whose spirit indwells us and illuminates our smallness so that as a thousand burning bushes sent out into our community, it might be lit up so that the world may say, as Moses said, I must turn aside to see this great sight. Why this church burns and yet is not burned up. And let me tell you, when they ask that question about us, you know what the next two questions are going to be, don't you? You know what they are. Who am I? And what's that second one? Who are you?